0: This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park.
1: This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband Peter. Today will be our first ever episode on. Abstract Expressionism. That's surprising. Have we not had any local exhibitions in this movement recently, so we're going all out to provide our listeners with delicious insights into Abstract Expressionism. Stay tuned.
0: Well, good morning, everyone. Today we'll have an interesting show in honor of Women's History Month. The show will revolve around the work of Joan Mitchell, an internationally acclaimed woman artist at the time where men ruled the art world. Her energetic and emotionally packed large-scale works had critical acclaim then and still now in this exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The exhibition is on until August 14, 2022. The Baltimore Museum of Art is a great cultural institution in the country. Sheila, Peter, and I have ventured there to bring you several programs on the Art Experience radio show. The Baltimore Museum of Art represents an important sanctuary in my life I live three short blocks away from the lovely uh, neighborhood next to Wyman Park where the museum is. There's a great art there and it's always worth a trek to Baltimore. Shirley and I have talked much about the Cone Collection and the works of Matisse associated with this important collection at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The Baltimore Museum of Art was a savior for me at the rigors of graduate school for four years. And it's a place to see great art and get lost in the power of visual art in a beautiful museum. Sheila and I and Peter are discussing Joan Mitchell. So much about this exhibition is about the art world in New York City in the 1950s. It was abstract expressionism, an art movement that exploded after World War II when New York City stole the title from Paris, France, as the center of the art world. It represents the first time the U.S. took the reins of the contemporary art world, but this came with a catch women were not included in the chauvinistic clique of male artists, male art critics, and male art
1: historians. Hey, Tom. <laughs> First of all, Joan Mitchell, as you were saying, would she would have been completely disgusted with us for honoring her as a woman's artist in Women's History Month. Joan Mitchell saw herself as a painter, period. No categorical qualifications. No gender, huh? <laughs> well, well, she just did never want to be a woman painter. So, okay, uh, <laughs> and she grew up with a distant mother and a father who was so disappointed that she was a girl that he ignored her and he wrote John on her birth certificate. And he just ignored her until he thought he could influence her, and he told her she could never be great, but he demanded excellence, and still nothing she accomplished would ever be good enough. He was also an amateur painter. In New York in the 50s, Joan Mitchell joined the art scene with the men, and she was told specifically that women couldn't paint the way men could. It was something biological. Too bad you're not male and French and dead, she was told. She saw it as pointless to join with the women. The men were in charge. But since they believed that she could never paint with the men, that she'd always be second-rate, men included her. And they were supportive of her artistic career because they felt she wasn't a threat. So now, when the art world is looking for greatness with more diversity, her art has risen in value exponentially. A friend of mine told me about his friend who's a writer and collector of Joan Mitchell's work And he sold one of his paintings to buy his absolutely fabulous house in France.
0: Wow. Well, the phenomenon of abstract expressionism represents an incredible creative leak by American painters, which we have talked about briefly before. The phenomenon of these artists comes fraught with great tragedy, mystery, and highs and lows. The generation of male dominance became evident with the irascibles, A famous photograph by a female photographer, Nina Leen, from November 24, 1950, which made the cover of Life magazine. Artists like Theodore Stammas, Jimmy Ernst, Barnett Newman, James Brooks, Mark Rothko, Roche Bousset-Dart, William Basiotis, Jackson Pollock, Clifford Still, Robert Motherwell, Brady Walker Tomlin, Willem de Kooning, Aldous Gottlieb, Ad Reinhardt, and Hedda Stern, all men except for Hedda Stern. And she wrote, They were all furious that I was in it, because they all were sufficiently macho to think that the presence of a woman took away from the serious of it all. That's what Hedda Stern said in an interview with Phyllis Tuckman in 1981. It took another decade or so, which is now known as the second generation of abstract expressionist artists to include wonderful women artists like Joan Mitchell, Helen Frankenthaler, Elaine de Kooning, Lee Krasner, and Grace Hartigan. Sheila, this was a great breakthrough for women, but let's hear your take on it, as I have much to share As uh, I was a student and a graduate assistant of Grace Hardigan in the late 1990s, and I heard a lot about this group from Grace's personal experience. And in the trenches, she had the knowledge that was going on in the art world back then. Give us your perspective as a woman artist.
1: Well, first, I just wanted to say that Joan really didn't like being labeled as a second generation anything. So, but to answer your question, Tom, being an art student in New York in the fifties, girls weren't admitted into the club, the men's club. But I was taught and treated seriously as an art student, just not given access into the art world where my, which my teachers were a part of. But what did I know? I was just so happy to be there.
0: Well, Grace Hardigan, who I really trusted and had a, and had and have a, tr- a tremendous amount of respect for her as I was her assistant for two years. and Grace Hodgkin was a straight shooter, tough, a survivor, and an incredibly communicative and passionate woman. Not everyone liked her. She never minced words. I absolutely enjoyed that about her, and yes, she brought me to tears in some private critiques about my work, but I learned from her and, and I had an open heart and mind with her. Grace Hartigan knew Joan Mitchell, Elaine de Kooning, and uh, and Helen Frankenthaler very well. These women swam in a sea of male sharks They were not always kind or helpful and extremely critical of their female counterparts. There was was so much competition to make it in the New York City art world, and the female survival strategies in the male-dominated world proved these women artists had to be savvy and extremely hardworking these women were trying to break through the new york art art scene because they were all talented there were fighters. Grace Hartigan always referred to Helen Frankenthaler as the uptown girl. She came from privilege, married very well, and always was part of the socialite scene. Elaine de Kooning sacrificed so much for her career to keep her husband, Willem de Kooning, on track, and she was dedicated to him. A comparable situation was for Lee Krasner, the support and strength for the great but troubled Jackson Pollock. But Joan Mitchell was another story. When Grace talked about Joan Mitchell to me, it was like she had respect, but it came with a sadness. Grace Hardigan was a survivor. Joan Mitchell was not. Both artists struggled with alcohol abuse, and one of Grace Hardigan's greatest triumphs is that she did survive her disease, and Hardigan was a great advocate of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and with her fabulous husband's help she survived. Joan Mitchell was not so lucky. These group of women artists in the sea of male sharks, again, as I say, were also competitive among themselves. They shared their men in various ways. They shared their drinking hall at the Cedar Tavern and their art with circles of musicians, writers, and poets like Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery. For these women, gaining entree in the art world was not easy. And this exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art reintroduces us to one of their acclaimed powerhouses in Joan Mitchell.
1: Well, Joan and her sister Sally grew up in wealth and privilege. Her parents were both nationally known. Her mother, Marian Strobel, had been an editor at Poetry Magazine, which still comes in the mail for Peter. Her father was a renowned expert on syphilis, Joan and Sally were wasp princesses. They lived apart from the rest of society, especially after 1940 when Joan's father brought the 10th floor of a building on Chicago's Gold Coast overlooking Lake Michigan with its marinas along the shore. In the summer, they had an eight-bedroom villa at Lake Forest, Illinois. The view of the water was often present in her work throughout her whole life. Materially, Joan had everything, but unlike Helen Frankenthaler, both her parents' disappointment in her began with her birth. They would wanted a bo- boy. They both did. Her father wrote the name John on her birth certificate and then had to change it to Joan, and then he proceeded to ignore her. For the first two years, her mother was largely disengaged, so the nurses took care of her with a cook and a maid to feed them and a driver to chauffeur them around. Joan's nurse was an abusive German woman who terrified her with horrific stories. This was the time of Al Capone, and the stories filled her with danger. She wore glasses from the time she was three. Her mother was partially deaf and lived in a society of intellectuals. Joan lived in her own kind of silence. Communication with Joan's elders was almost non-existent. Joan didn't talk as a child, so she expressed herself in writing and in art. Her mother's world was filled with the best poets of the time at the dinner table, and they lightened the feeling in the house. Her father was always demanding, never satisfied. She was a champion figure skater, which is so evident in her brush strokes. Once you know that, you can see her brush gliding over the ice. And Joan wrote poetry. When she was 10, her poem was published in Poetry Magazine. I'm going to read it to you. The Last Red Berries hang from the thorn tree. The last red leaves fall to the ground. Bleakness through the trees and bushes comes without a sound.
2: I like that. Bleakness. An abstract noun becomes an active being that comes through the trees. That's a move in abstract expressionism. Something abstract becomes a living, developing agent.
1: Hey. Smart, Peter. Okay. <laughs> Very good. <Peter. laughs> the paintings in the exhibit were act exactly like her poem. Landscapes in that they're divided horizontally, so it's really easy to read the space. Cloudy, light grays and blue grays and browns, pearlescent sky, an aerial view of Manhattan, paint slashing and dripping with speed and energy.
0: Well, if you've just joined us, this is the Artist Experience Radio Program on Tacoma Radio. FM. I'm Tom Ksenakis with my co-hosts, Sheila and Peter Blake. We're talking about the abstract expressionist artist, Joan Mitchell, whose evolution and place in the in the art at the end of the 20th century is being examined with 70 works at the Baltimore Museum of Art. After high school, Joan went to Smith College, but it was the wrong place for her. They didn't have an art program, and adding insult to injury, she got a B plus in drawing. Oh, my goodness. She <laughs> transferred to the Art Institute and then to Columbia for grad school. She was, at first, embracing politics through her work. She admired the German artist Katkovitz and used her paintings to illustrate issues of justice, and she was a member of the Socialist Party, which many artists were then back then. Her paintings became large and abstract, and she set her eyes on New York City to study the great, with the great master artist and teacher, Hans Hoffmann. That did not work out. She couldn't understand what he was saying and he drew on his students' drawings so she quit after one class. Uh, That's a shame. She went to study in Paris and the south of France. Her interest in abstraction began in the late 1940s. Back in New York, she associated with what has been called the second generation of abstract expressionist painters. By 1950, she had a studio in, in Greenwich Village and then on 9th Street. Here she was engaged with the women artists of the period and, uh, and the movement, and the men's part of the movement as well. She had distinct relationships with her male counterparts like Franz Klein, Willem de Kooning, and Philip Gustin. In 1951, Art deal Leo Castelli and the members of the Arts Club had an exhibition titled Ninth Street Show. This groundbreaking exhibition, which included both men and women of the abstract expressionist movement, were together. The artist received her work well, and it began her ascent into the art scene with the solo exhibitions, such as at the New Gallery in New York City in 1952.
1: In New York in the 50s, part of the scene of Artists and Poets... Philip Gustin, Franz Klein, she saw her first de Kooning, Attic. It was a muscular, anxiety-filled painting, sort of like a drawing and a painting at the same time, with paint as a material substance. That's the first time she saw that. And there are leaps of space and interlocking forms of figure and ground, and that had a huge influence on her.
0: Oh, uh, Yeah, that's absolutely right. When I look at a drawings I immediately think of Willem de Kooning. Uh-huh. It's almost like a a (laughs) no-brainer. By the mid-1950s, Joan Mitchell had cemented her work in the New York art scene but sought refuge in France. She had expressed her setbacks as a woman admitted she did receive support from her contemporaries, and that's something that is very important. It seemed that she felt almost patronized by the men, and they were not seeing her talents as competition or even being in the same league as the men, and that's unfortunate. This was, But this was not an uncommon attitude by the men at the time. It was like the women did not rate, and Grace Hardigan felt the same way. She met a Canadian painter, Jean-Paul Riopel, and they had a long relationship, albeit volatile and strange. Their their partnership was one where they lived in separate homes, had separate studios, but they shared meals together and they also partied together. By 1959, Jonah Mitchell established herself in the French art scene, and was represented by various galleries, maintaining liaisons with the galleries in in the U.S. as well. Joan Mitchell was getting really good press, and she was involved in many exhibitions in Europe. Joan Mitchell found inspiration in nature, and her emotionally charged works were akin to many of the abstract expressionists of the day. Dripped, flung, squeezed, splattered, spilled paint, contacted the canvas in an angry and violent way.
1: Hmm, so what's so great about these paintings anyway? I'll tell you the first thing about them. They're purely painting. I don't think you can tell much from books, but the photos on the screen on the computer are better at capturing what she did. But they're all about the activity of paint, the brush, looking, what happens next. One thing she does is she always works on white, uh, as Matisse does, and she used white as a negative so that the color remains pure. But then she also she also uses white in an impasto way to bring the negative space through. There's a that great hickory painting that has this activity of the white coming through the hickory. It gives the color a purity. So, in the beginning, she had landscapes as her structure, and that did continue. After she went to France, she fell in love with Matisse very much, and she blended the action painting with the freeing beauty of light and color. Her early paintings are a nice scale, they have a landscape feel, and for me, I'm totally comfortable with this because it's the way I learned to look in my early days. Memory, observation, thin washes, nervous linear passages, thick impastos, and bare canvas, calligraphic gestures. She said, my paintings repeat a feeling more like a poem. She listened to jazz and she listened to Bach. And her tumultuous relationship with Jean-Paul Riopole, Riopelle lasted until 1979 with lots of drinking and smoking and poetry while they lived full-time in France. She brought a house with money she inherited from her parents right near Giverny, and she and Riappel lived in, well, we have already said they lived in separate houses, but they did a lot of drinking together. And Joan was a true alcoholic. She would sleep until 5 p.m., and then get up, have breakfast, and paint most of the night, and then she'd wake in the afternoon. That alone will make you crazy. She had 13 dogs at one point. She was the first female American to have a solo at the Musée d'Art Moderne in the Ville de Paris. Mich- Mitchell had a circle of artist friends, but hardly ever had women friends as equals. She had a really nice studio. It was 15 feet wide and 30 feet long, and she could paint only two panels at a time, and her b- her paintings were getting bigger and bigger so that she would, she would paint these paintings Panels with only kind of guessing how they would look together, and she they were very atmospheric. They started. She started to use blocks of color, and a lot of Bonard is in these paintings, and this environment of color. And she had been resistant to to French paintings. She embraced the pull push tension between colors that make colors recede or come forward. And Mitchell became more consciously to address that, which she would have learned from Hans Hoffman a long time before. (laughs) (laughs) Back and forth between solid patterns and broken linear patterns, she had a standard poodle who was totally out of control, and she did this painting called "Heel Sit, Stay. It had a lot of light showing through. So now I want to speak about this thing. Joan had synesthesia. And synesthesia is associations in the brain of sounds with color, letters or numbers associated with color, shapes with sounds, movement could have taste, smells have a physical feeling, moods have color. Of course they do. La Vie en Rose, which is life in rosy hues painted with a black brush, That. It's it's a strange painting because it's sort of violent and at the same time it has this rosy sort of you know back hue around it and uh, then Ria Paul he he left and he she felt abandoned and and he betrayed her because he left with her studio assistant but Joan was tough and alcohol doesn't help anything she was also generous. She left an endowment. She helped women painters. She still, the endowment is the Joan Mitchell Foundation, which is very much in evidence now. And uh, she would give through that endowment she would give materials and studio and space. and students would come to her studio in Vittorio, France. and she would tell them, "Be serious." She was tough. She wore sunglasses. She had two hip replacements, and she was real thin, always ready to talk painting. The studio should be orderly, she would say, with no distractions, never paint in a trance, be alert. She would be encouraging, or she would be caustic and brutal. They would drink way, way too many martinis. Sometimes she'd purchase their work, She'd rivet her attention on you. These are the women, young women, that she invited to her studio. She'd make, she'd make them feel special. And then she'd broadcast their secrets at the dinner table for public dissection. So you couldn't leave because you're out there with Joan Mitchell and you have to stay. So then the next day she'd seduce you and abuse you again. She was incredibly kind and unspeakably rude. She would forbid you to waste time in self-doubt. And then she got cancer of the jaw. She painted her way through it. She got lung cancer and chemotherapy. She painted these enormous paintings with enormous will. The details are wonderful. She had assistance. They helped her mix and move the paintings around, but never let anyone touch her paintings. It's very important. They would mix her coffee cans full of paint, now the paintings are deteriorating because thin paint over thick that never dried, and that has a terrible uh, destruction in the paintings. But And some of the colors have changed, but they're still really gorgeous. She always felt underrated, as Tom was saying, and she invented her own way. To, to be honest, here's what I love about her paintings. Some of her colors are just so luminous, the cadmium yellows, the deep cadmium yellows, with cobalt violet, the greens, many, many transparent, opaque, harsh, delicate glazes, the brushstrokes. She had a a brushstroke of brown matter going dancing through the cadmium yellow, and it's just so beautiful. But here's what I can't understand about her paintings: these dense tangles of opaque colors hanging out in space. The paintings are so big you can't possibly take them in. They're 10 feet wide, 8 feet tall. Some of them are way bigger than that. And I just got tired. It's impossible to think of her climbing up and down the ladder, even when she was 40, let alone sick and weak. I always come back to how she straddles and defies both abstraction and landscape. There is no word for the territory she created between the two. Tom, I like the way you chose the word gorgeous. Many of her paintings are unabashedly beautiful, but some are also not, and some are both. Beauty is another danger zone for women artists.
0: Wow, Sheila, that's a...
1: <laughs> Sorry. I mean, uh,
0: we so have much. a lot to talk about in the show, not after. all <laughs> well, throughout the 1970s and part of the 1980s, Joan Mitchell continued to show in New York and in Paris through all these health crises, too, and and her work had begun to change and and as uh Sheila said she had an entourage of artists that visited her and there were many so- social circles that kept her busy well as that was going on her uh she had a dealer uh that had a a very tragic death due to the complications of AIDS and you know she was still sick through this whole time and It it took its toll, and Joan Mitchell finally died in the American Hospital in Paris at the age of 67. And as I mentioned early in the program, her life was filled with many highs and lows, but she died too young, and she did not survive these incredible health issues that beset her at a young age. You're listening to the Art Experience radio program on Tacoma Radio at 94.3 FM. I'm Tom Ksenakis, and I'm with Sheila and Peter Blake. In honor of Women's History Month, we ventured to Baltimore to see Joan Mitchell Exhibition, which goes on till August fourteenth, 2022.
1: Well, going to this exi- exhibition is to immerse yourself in one of the fountains of abstract expressionism, of course, Sometime you should take the time to see Jackson Pollock's paintings at the National Gallery and Clifford Still and the others. But this show at the Baltimore Museum, with its 70 works, as Tom say, says, is very well curated.
0: Oh, and yes, it is. Well, you know, I think it's important to put Joan Mitchell in the context of now because her work is actually uh, being, you know, re understood, if you could, could, I could use the word. It's, it's evolving in the in the critical eye and it's open to much more scholarship and study during than it was during her own time and something that that um, Sheila alluded to is that her work is so physical it it's physical first and then emotional and psychological and she was a very fit woman as sheler had mentioned with her figure skating in, in her early work, it, it, which is devoted to the landscape, which also uh, exists in later period, but uh, her influences are many, as we talked about. But when I look at her work, I have to say, I think of the physical nature of Van Gogh's work immediately, because Van Gogh, at the end of his shorter life, was very physical. And of course, Wilhelm de Kooning and Franz Klein, as we already mentioned, very physical painters, and Matisse. It is known that, uh, Mitchell actually adored Matisse. And she also stated Paul Cézanne and Vasily Kandinsky as her influences. And the reason I, I bring up Kandinsky here is he was obsessed by synesthesia. So they're on the same plane about synesthesia, which is uh, a, a very complicated uh, way to kind of in, in, interact with your own physiology about uh, having multiple senses being triggered uh, at the same time. I am not sure that I see the temperament of, their, of of Kandinsky or Cezanne in her works. But she looked at these artists, and she looked at the landscape, and Kandinsky, another thing I want to say, his early landscapes, which we don't really think about that much, were really amazing, and maybe she saw that in his, in his early landscapes as she saw in her early landscapes.
2: Well you, you know I'd like to speak for a moment to our listeners who might be convinced by you to go to the show uh, and don't know too much about it because I mean that was my my situation and and I'll just say, you know, my first glance at the work is it, it seemed like a mess. I thought, oh, this is going to be hard and I'm, but I, but I, I you know. She, the short story is, uh, no, I, I, I came to like it, but <clears throat> but I'm standing in front of uh, w- w- an early painting. It's, it's really big. I'm sort of looking into the detail, and a guy uh, who's trying to take a picture of it asked me if I wanted to be in his picture of the swamp. He says, I live in a swamp, and I want a picture of this swamp. But So that was his, his take. <laughs> but um, to me, the, the paintings do pay, repay close attention. Um, the same attention you might give to looking closely at a camellia bush or, or a forest or the bark of a tree. I mean, a swamp, after all, uh, although a, a natural swamp is somewhat inaccessible because we don't like to get our feet wet, but it's, it's full of life. And you start to see these paintings as being full of life. They're, you start to see them as not... Being random. I think that's maybe the first, you know, suspicion. Maybe this is just random, but it's not. Um, there's order, there's urge, there's flow, there's space. It doesn't, there are landscapes, but it, it doesn't have to be as beautiful as nature, it doesn't have to compete with nature. As, as long as you start to see it as being willed into complex forms, it's like a message that can't be translated into words. That is ineffable. You start to see it as being constructed like an architectural piece.
1: Hey, it's all right. So you really do have to see the real paintings. You simply can't get it from pictures in a book. You have to see the paint itself and not a picture of the paint.
2: Yes, the paintings are constructed Out of paint. There's an architecture of solid structures built up out of impasto paint, and that's kind of a
1: foreground to washes and swirls. And some colors are thin washes. Some are staccato brushstrokes. Some are impasto, really violent brushstrokes. And we're talking about moving across the canvas for 10 feet or so. Right.
2: And so these landscapes, of course, they're abstract, but, I mean, you can see light blue, swirly white puffs at the top, and, and, and it's clearly sky and clouds, dark vertical strokes or trees, green horizontal strokes, boughs, etc. But the size, they, they are large... Larger than a person. You can't capture that in a book or on the internet. Uh, I mean, a sight photograph can show a person in the same shot. But you, as a viewer, cannot envelop yourself in a storm of paint unless you go up to the real painting.
0: Oh, for sure. And I like to talk a little about these landscapes. Well, the movement in the landscape, I think, is something that Joan Mitchell really captures well. My Landscape from 1967, and there are so many others in the show, is an example. Well, nature is about energy. It's also about physicality. And Mitchell captures this well. even though they're chaotic, and they're powerful, and they're violent. But in the chaos, there is some kind of order which that also is part of nature. Nature nature has this duality of order and chaos. And there's many of these paintings, I find there's nothing serene about them. Although some blues and greeds help, help temper the work, these works, I think, carry a great neuroticism that comes with chaos. that And that echoes, I think, the artist's temperament as a person. These works are out-of-control physical exercises. It's almost like a workout. That's how I really see them. You know, it takes great physicality, as Sheila and Peter have mentioned. These are huge paintings, and you really got to be in shape to slap that paint on those white canvases. They're so large. And Joan Mitchell once told uh, critic Irving Sandler, who I actually met, And I carry my paintings around with me. Thus, the similar name, which is a title of a painting, I carry my paintings around with me. There's a physical kind of, and I wonder if that implies a burden as well. You know, it's something Uh, that I thought about, you know, if if that also implies a burdenness. But Mitchell was not trying to mimic nature as one sees it, because it's how she remembered nature. And I think that's really important. Mitchell was expressing her feelings of nature. And again, nature is physical. It's emotional. And, he, and, and she captures these states from memory, which I think is really remarkable. And Mitchell departs from Van Gogh and Cezanne. And I think this is really important, because they embedded themselves in nature and the landscape. She doesn't. She takes it away, and, and she deconstructs and reconstructs nature as a memory and emotion. And her emotions are very extreme, and I think they're dangerously extreme. Not only do I see her work as violent, I see it almost as tormented.
1: Wow.
2: Wow. So, I know that's heavy. <laughs>
1: it's
2: right. These points about the violent emotions are um, probably on target, and I... Uh, You'll have more to say about that, I think. But um, what what many first-time viewers will feel initially isn't the emotion in the painting. They'll be baffled, right?
1: Well, right, and a lot of it baffles me now. These paintings are sometimes so large, as we keep saying, that it would have to be a giant to take them in. She both loved and hated Monet, who she called Monette.
0: Oh,
1: my goodness. Ooh. (laughs) And she didn't want to be perceived as a beautiful expressionist or, you know, she thought of Monet as a mediocre colorist, which could not be further from the truth. She was critical of him and basi- basically she was Critic- critical of his use of perspectival space not tipping the painting forward which was a device at her time from Clement Greenberg about the flatness of the canvas and you're not allowed to use any kind of perspective but that is what Monet did and and that's, that's just like a, a fashion of the times that led to color field painting but With the water lilies at the Orange you can sit back on those couches and see the paintings surrounding you on the curved walls. You don't have that luxury in this show. And I just couldn't take in that much of the canvas at once. So it was difficult to, you know, I use the word apprehend. They were hard for me to apprehend the whole painting.
0: Well, thank you, Sheila, for that uh, that mention of of what clement greenberg and the dogma of the period with the abstract expressionism uh, and sh- sh- i thank you sheila for this because these artists absolutely took everything the renaissance gave us about true illusion and pers- perspectival space and they threw it in the garbage there was they had no place for that in their paintings and it destroyed the entree into a space and when you look at all these artists i mean you from mark toby to jackson pollock uh even barnett newman all of them they they dissolve space in a whole new vocabulary and thank you for that because it's really important for our uh, listeners to understand yeah
2: yeah that's really interesting, because you know because um, I know much less about these things than you guys do, uh, it make, now it suddenly makes sense like here, here I have to say this is how I approached the painting, and it makes sense that what you said is that the space is like turned up vertical, so what I do is i I, um, I stand. Close, uh, and the, and these so, uh, these are big paintings. So uh, stand up close and look at a detail in the huge forest of paint, and see the detail as a structure in space. It's a it's a filigree. Well, it's a, like a luminescent liquid ribbon winding and unwinding, or a jewel in an ocean wave. Whatever. Then you take a little step back and see that there's a structure that what you were just looking at is embedded in a sort of a flow towards a drop off over here a hole and then there are deep spaces over here in this other part with distant vistas of ambiguous objects there is a pictorial space but it is not it's not a like a real space it's 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 uh, made up out of brushstrokes with hollows and protrusions and roughnesses and holes and bridges. It's completely non-representational. But the mind encountering it creates the meaning. Uh, You can see hidden figures and faces. Uh, I mean, this is clearly not required that you see them. But I think it's also not wrong. You you might see, for example, in uh, the black paintings of the third room, which don't use black, um, a rocky shore cliff with swirling swells breaking around them. And in another painting, stick figures striding forward. Um, uh, Of course, blue and white ovals at the top, that's cloudy sky. And green vertical strokes with orange spots would be a garden. So in this way, the landscapes are abstracted. Um, but, but they are vertical, yeah. The painting, uh, titled Hemlocks, uh, resembles a bit Hemlocks with snow on the branches, but only to a point when you look into it, the snow turns into waterfalls with colored notes dancing.
1: But Tom... What about the emotion of violence that you see in these paintings?
2: Well, I,
0: I definitely want to get to that, but I want to jump on something Peter said here, and this is really important for our listeners. Yes, these are works that are non-representational, as Peter said correctly. And then he see, you know, one can see hidden figures and faces. See, that's the thing that. The average person looking at her work wants to look for something to hang on to in the space. They want to see a cliff. They want to see a tree. They want to see... Because that's what we usually see. But these artists are actually not really wanting that. So that's where abstraction is so difficult to not only explain, but it's also difficult to look at. Because the human animal, if I could use the word, wants a space that they're to be comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And you don't get that in Joan Mitchell's paintings. She doesn't give you that really at all. Well, about the anger and violence, you know, these usually are are associated with the negative kind of emotion. And definitely apropos to Mitchell's work, but anger could be a great source of inspiration. And I, I know this from personal experience. And I had a really dark, angry period in the 90s when I was with Grace Hartigan. And Grace Hartigan said, you know, I really like the way you paint when you're angry. And so certain people kind of do well in that dark space, if you will, in their mind. And so I I want to mention, so there are other artists that come to mind, Franz Klein is definitely one of them, uh, that they painted in an angry way. Well, this kind of, of expression... And you know, personal and intimate torment is something that I think very few artists take a chance in addressing because it's very risky. It's like a negative emotion, right? Right. Everybody likes happy paintings, right? So, so in this sense, for her, it was very healthy to to explore it. But it's also an, an, an explosive and also a very dangerous uh, road to hoe for a visual artist. Anger is not something a lot of people want to deal with on a wall, right? Right. (laughs) And so that fearlessness that she had in dealing with these violent episodes in paint are very consistent, and I have to commend her on that. She was really consistent. And we're going to take a short break, and we're going to look a little more about her influences in music and poetry. So we'll be right back.
1: Welcome back. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake with our co hosts Tom Zanakis and my husband Peter Blake. You're listening to WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. We're talking today about a wonderful new exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art surveying the artist Joan Mitchell.
2: Poetry was very important to Joan Mitchell. On the wall next to the painting Hemlocks is one stanza of a poem by Wallace Stevens, which made a great big deal out of Hemlocks and may have influenced the painting. Wallace Stevens was one of the great modernist poets, just at the height of a long career when Joan was painting, and she wanted her paintings to be a poem. I think that Stevens' poem will help us understand Mitchell. The poem is "Domination of Black." It's a very early poem, maybe 1915, so it's it has it has a little oh, maybe old-fashioned flavor. In this poem, I think we can it illuminates the goals of Abstract Expressionism. Uh, here's the first stanza: "Domination of Black. At night by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves." repeating themselves, turned in the room, like the leaves themselves turning in the wind. Yes, but the color of the heavy hemlocks came striding, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. So you, the listener, reader, or sitting by the fire at night, A poem is a script for the reader to perform in their imagination, to hear it and picture it unfolding in image and sound. Now here we experience a reverie. At night, by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves repeating themselves turned in the room. So the the colors turned in the room. The painter has the advantage of the poet of being actually able to create those colors and get them turning in the wind, Then we read, yes, but the color of the heavy hemlocks came striding. The hemlocks are dark and heavy. They represent death. Poets are philosophers. There's a long tradition of facing what we don't want to face. Chief among these topics is death. But death, when faced and turned into beauty, becomes sublime. In the poem, the hemlocks come striding. Death comes striding. It's actually the color of the hemlocks comes striding. There's a sort of synesthesia, and you can now see it in Mitchell's paintings. The hemlocks are covered in snow and ice, uh, the personification of winter, a spirit of death appearing in nature. The stanza concludes, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. What is the cry of the peacocks? Well, it's ambiguous, and that's a good thing. It's dramatic, it's a cry and colorful, it's a peacock and strange. Um, The cry changes the poet's mood and thought. We're not sure how. So it's ambiguous, dramatic, colorful and strange. Images of death unfolding in time, unfolding in imagined space. This is what painters are trying to do. The final stanza uh, is what was written on the wall. Out of the window, I saw how the planets gathered like the leaves themselves turning in the wind. I saw how the night came, came striding like the color of the heavy hemlocks. I felt afraid, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks.
0: Well, Peter, that is so beautiful, and I want to thank you for bringing up ambiguity in the paint because these artists were really very comfortable with ambiguity and uh ad reinhardt talked about that a lot but uh, many viewers of of art and and painting especially are not comfortable with ambiguity ambiguity again it puts you in a very unfamiliar space and place Mm -hmm. so these artists were really masters of ambiguity and uh much like in in many ways poets can be well She was so open to the inspiration of poets, uh, Joan Mitchell, and Frank O'Hara was part of her entourage in in the group of abstract expression and artists until his tragic death in 1966. Frank O'Hara's inspiration in his works was was so much about contemporary art and music. They were like kind of parallel forces. Joan Mitchell's painting, Ode to Joy, which is a poem by Frank O'Hara, that's the title, Ode to Joy, a poem by Frank O'Hara, is a bit different in a lot of the works because it's more about neutrality and linearity, which I, I think is very uh, interesting. And then it's a very somber look at Joy and her relationship to the man and the poet that Frank O'Hara was. I mean, this is a large three panel work, which is 110 and a hundred and ten and a half inches by 197 and a quarter inches. Again, huge. And it shows the athleticism and physical nature of a painting. It's almost like when I looked at that painting, I saw a running up and down a ladder. And these blocks of color and cool grays, a kind of charcoal black ochre, a dirty white, with a muted pink or rose color. I mean, that is a gorgeous color combination in this work. And I think it's an incredible painting. And it contrasts many of the other works in the exhibition that that are much more... I think violent, this is a little more subdued, and I think it's a little easy to look at. But it doesn't have that neuroticism that a lot of the other works do, but the energy is still there, but it's a different kind of energy. Now, as an interpretation of joy, wow, it doesn't really look like joy to me, but I think it's maybe her idea of joy, which could be very honest and expressive in, about what her sense of joy is. I don't think it's ironic. I really doubt if it is. But it's her sense of like a neutral joy. It's, it's, a, it's a great painting. Well, Joan, Joan Mitchell's, I've got to talk about the drawings now. Joan Mitchell's autonomic drawing, which is the most gestural, intuitive kind of drawing you can do. I find them extremely beautiful. Her early works have a great honesty and a naive quality. I I don't know, was I wrong to say that? But some of them reminded me of Alberto Giacometti's energy in some of them, but in a much more less defined, uh, figurative way. And of course, Franz Klein definitely comes through here. And these works are beautiful and delicate, and it's tough to Used the word "delicate" when you're talking about it. She'd hate me for that one too. <laughs> Any, anyway, what about the pastels? Well, how, how did you think about those? Yeah, you're really good at pastels.
1: <laughs> well, her pastels are a completely different medium than paint for her. Uh, Pastels—you can never have too many pastels. You can, ha- you, you get an incredible range of color and uh and and also because if you use the pastel in a certain way you can blend it into the paper uh Sean Scully does that where the paper and the pastel sort of become one material and they they're not separated where the paint is always separate separate from the canvas no matter even if you wash it on on it's still separate but um, the pastel, it lends itself to a different kind of beauty. First of all, pastel is a beautiful medium in itself, more than paint. Paint is, you know, difficult and not always beautiful, but uh, you, they're, they're very rich. And, uh, but if the pastels are small... The, you know, they're sort of regular drawing size on the wall. And they could seem unimportant and did to me. But maybe I was just getting really tired.
0: Do you think the scale from seeing all those big paintings and then those small works, it kind of reduced them to like nothing? I do. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, as Sheila kind of alluded to earlier in our show that... You know, Joan Mitchell's works are just getting incredible prices now in the art market. I mean, the representation of the artist's works has changed, changed hand in the last few years, and she's now with David Zwirner, and, and, and he's setting up exhibitions, and there's a lot of work on auction. In 2021, Joan, and this was during COVID, which I thought was amazing, Joan Mitchell's uh, painting of 12 Hawks at 3 o'clock, uh, which was from 1962 when she did it, sold for $20 million at the Art Basel Hong Kong. And lots of her work are really commanding, you know, these kind of prices and, you know, good for her. Uh, but I, I'd like to talk a little about the, the foundation, which you alluded to. And um, and this is something that, you know, I think is really important part of her legacy. I mean, she's been assisting artists for so many decades Young artists, emerging artists in the art world, she has grants and fellowships that are set up for painters, sculptors, and also art collectives. She gives thousands of grants, you know, over her, these these few years, and notably, contemporary artists have used them. Uh, And uh, I know several artists that got uh, Joan Mitchell grants, and uh, we talked about Mark Bradford in a show, and recently Amy Sherald, and they both got uh, grants from the Joan Mitchell Foundation. And of course, Amy Sherald is the uh, the artist that uh, the Baltimore artist that did the Michelle Obama portrait, and. it's also a, a, a nice resource for information for artists. There's also an Artist's re- his Residency Program, which is in New Orleans, and that was established in 2015. So, Joan Mitchell, kind of, and the foundation has really been an important legacy uh, for an artist that defiantly attacked her canvases and left millions and millions of marks. And we have to include that in the show about this foundation. Any
1: closing comments, guys? Sure. Well, to be very honest, I left the show dissatisfied with myself because I wasn't able to see things as the artist saw them and as many people who write about her work are able to see them. I think, for me, they're just too damn big. And those patches of color that invade her later paintings I understand that she was using these patches as visual experiences from her memory, but I just couldn't seem to connect with them. And it's interesting because I have a kind of a synesthesia myself. And and it said about Joan Mitchell that she didn't. It wasn't the only way she thought of color. It was one of her tools, but she had a chart of the colors and the letters that she had made which, you know, color letter associations and I looked at it because they're different from mine, which could have been it could be something to do with that. Yeah, so
2: it could be that the messages, uh, the hidden messages, you you, uh, are frustrated because uh, you can't you're not reading them. Yes, Yeah. right. And uh, for me abstract expressionism is like a score for music, um, you the viewer have to complete it. You encounter it with a curious and questioning mind and unfold it in time. And I think that in the 1950s, this this pr- process, abstract expressionism, was freedom and exuberance for life. Um, So just as Beethoven's art had a political message, which is, we can all be noble. We can all of us become a new kind of aristocracy. I think abstract expressionism was an attempt to raise American painters and their enthusiasts, a motley crew, not into the nobility, but into something totally new, a vanguard for fresh and troubled times. So, viewing these works brings for me a nostalgia for that spirit, uh, that faith. And so I would go back.
0: Oh, wow. Thank you for that. Well, Joan Mitchell at the Baltimore Museum of Art is a powerful visitation of a woman artist that was underappreciated in her day. And exhibitions of this kind, like the one in Baltimore, build nicely on the evolution and the appreciation of a work. A work that's physical, demanding, energetic, emotional, and risky. She was a creative whirlwind and a torrent of kinetic painted surfaces. The intensity that comes with the work is tiring to look at, as Sheila has said several times. There's lots of chaos. There's lots of power. There's lots of visual confusion. The 70 works in this exhibition hardly give one a chance to rest the eye, never mind the body. The curators did a lovely job with these works, but the work itself is overwhelming. The work's visual weight can crush you, the scale of the art will knock you over, the marks on the canvas will make you dizzy, and the color, variety, and combinations could blind you. You can really get beat up in an exhibition like this. It seems Joan Mitchell enjoy that kind of thing, but maybe you will too. Come energized with a protein or power drink or something like that to get through the show because you're going to need it, but it will be worth it. The exhibition goes
1: on to August 14th. Sheila, what about this next show now? Well. I think we'll be going up to the Baltimore Museum again because they're having a show that's curated by the museum guards, which is something that have wanted something like this for, for years, for years this. because we the guards spend more time with this work than anybody, any viewer is ever going to do. And they have their own uh, opinions. And it's about this. It's about the works they pick from the collection and what they have to say about the work:
0: I think that's going to be a fun show Me and we're too. going to have a lot of fun with that. Well, it seems we finished one show and we're suddenly starting on another. Well Spring is in the air, and so is art and we're going to trek up back to Baltimore in a couple of weeks. Experience art and the visual and everything you do and thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.